0: If you have your Bibles, turn to James chapter 4, verse 4. And we're picking up simply where we left off last week. If you guys remember, the main issue that was being dealt with in the previous scriptures, verses 1 to 3, where there are these people among the church who aren't actually of the church. They are claiming the name of Christ. They are gathering with these group of believers. They're gathering with the church. In all reality, when you look at their life, they're not Christians at all. It's by their mere profession that they are called Christians. But if you look at their life compared to those who are truly living out the gospel, their life looks a lot different, a lot worse. And so in James' letter, he is calling these people out, letting them know uh, that the, the two cannot exist together. You're either one or the other. And the verses in between verses 1 and 3 is dealing with those who are, are continuing to seek happiness out their pleasures, their, their hedonisms. Remember, that what, what hedonism means is that pleasure and happiness is the highest good. That is something that the American culture is very much about. That as long as you're happy and you do what makes you feel good, then you are accomplishing the highest good, the highest form of happiness. And, and as we read last week in these scriptures, that was exactly these people's problem. They're seeking happiness and all their, their, their pleasures are causing these quarrels and conflicts. James starts off saying, what are the problems between other human beings? It's the fact that we all want what we want, and we come in conflicts with others. When it stops us from getting what we think will make us happy. And that only in God's holiness, in his wisdom, is that true happiness finally found and grasped and understood. It's not through material things, but through holy and spiritual things and heavenly things. So we're going to pick up at verse 4 now, and uh, follow along. We're going to read verses 4 all the way through 10. You adulteresses, this got off to a good start, right? You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scriptures speak to no purpose? He jealously desires a spirit which he has made to dwell in us, but he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and let your joy be turned to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord. And he will exalt you. Let's pray for God's blessing on this text before we get started. Lord, right now we ask you to humble us. We ask you to humble our hearts, to receive your word this morning, to teach us all something new about you and your holiness and and what you're doing in our lives. Teach us the, the very foundational truths of in, in this text of you have enemies and you have friends. Help us to know which one that we are. And help us to know what we can do about it if we're not. If we are if we are indeed enemies, you give us a solution. You give us an answer. You give us a way out. You have a way to reconcile us to you so that we are not your enemies anymore. And so right now we just ask for your, your spirit to guide us in this text. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. As Pastor Andy's been preaching through the Ten Commandments, we've already gone through the sixth commandment, which is, or seventh commandment, which is, "Do not commit adultery." And in this very beginning of this passage of verse four, he's following up the, the verses one to three. Uh, I'll just read them back over. You can follow along. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source? Your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and you do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Remember for wisdom. You ask and do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives so that you may spend it on your own pleasures. And then it says, you adulteresses, To get a better concept of of how strongly strongly God feels about this term of adultery and and why it's being used here, I want you guys to turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 16 uh, as to get a better image of what the Jewish culture and what the nation of Israel would have had an idea. Ezekiel is uh, one of the major prophets. Uh, It would be Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel is in the Old Testament. And it's a good thing that the children's ministry left, because this is a chapter that in the Jewish culture, little children were not allowed to know about. They were not allowed to read this text because of how explicit it is in its imagery of adultery. That as God describes the nation of Israel in this passage, it gets so bad that little children were not allowed to read these things. We're going to read the entire chapter chapter of Ezekiel 16. It's going to take us a minute. But it's really important that we get this concept of how God views unfaithfulness. On how God views adultery. As as a a man and woman come together and they cleave and they become one, just how serious it is in God's eyes that even looking at another person lustfully is committing adultery in their heart. And just how disgusting that is in God's eyes. And every time we do it, we are sinning. So let's begin reading. Ezekiel chapter 16. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, make known to Jerusalem her abominations, and say, Thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, Your origin and your birth are from the land of the Canaanite. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. As for your birth, on the day that you were born, your navel cord was not even cut, nor were you washed with water for cleansing, you were not rubbed of salt or even wrapped in clods, no eye looked with pity on you to do any of these things for you, to have compassion on you. Rather, you were thrown out into the open field, for you were aboard on the day you were born. When I passed by you and saw you squirming in your blood, I said to you while you were on while you were in your blood, live. Yes, I said to you while you were in your blood, live. I made you numerous like plants of the field. Then you grew up, you became tall and reached the age for fine ornaments. Your breasts were formed and your hair was grown, yet you were naked and bare. Then I passed by you and saw you, and behold, you were at the time for love. So I spread my skirt over you and covered your nakedness. I also swore to you and entered into a covenant with you so that you might become mine, declares the Lord God. Then I bathed you with water. I washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. I also clothed you with embroidered cloth and put sandals and porpoise skin on your feet. I wrapped you with fine linen and covered you with silk. I adorned you with ornaments, put bracelets on your hands, and a necklace around your neck. I also put a ring in your nostril, earrings in your ears, and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver, and your dress was of fine linen, silk, and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour, honey, and oil, and so you were exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. Then your fame went forth among the nations on account of your beauty. For it was perfect because of my splendor, which I bestowed on you, declares the Lord God. Now that we see how well God treated this orphan child and brought it up, here is where it takes a turn. But you trusted in your beauty and played the harlot because of your fame. You poured out your harlotries on every passerby who might be willing. You took some of your clothes, made for yourself high places on various colors, and, and played the harlot on them, which should never come, come about nor happen. You also took your beautiful jewels made of my gold and of my silver, which I given you, and you made for yourself male images that you might play the harlot with them. Then you took your embroidered cloth and covered them, and offered my oil and my incense before them. Also my bread, which I gave you, fine flour, oil, and honey, which I fed you. You would offer before them a a soothing aroma, and so it happened, declares the Lord God. Moreover, you took your sons and daughters whom you had borne to me, and sacrificed them to idols to be devoured. Were your harlotries so small a matter? You slaughtered my children and offered them up to idols by causing them to pass through the fire. That was um, sacrifices, child sacrifices, literally burning children to death uh, because of these other gods and these other worship practices. Besides all your abominations and harlotries, you did not remember the days of your youth when you were naked and bare and squirming in your blood. Then it came about, after all your wickedness, that you built yourself a shrine and made yourself a high place in every square. You built yourself a high place at the top of every street and made your beauty abominable. And you spread your legs to every passerby to multiply your harlotry. You also played the harlot with the Egyptians, your lustful neighbors, and multiplied your harlotry to make me angry. Behold, now I have stretched out my hand against you and diminished your nations. And I delivered you up to the desire of those who hate you, the the daughters of the Philistines who are ashamed of your lewd conduct. Moreover, you played the harlot with the Assyrians because you were not satisfied. You played the harlot with them and still were not satisfied. You also multiplied your harlotry with the land of merchants, Chaldea. Yet even with this, you were not satisfied. How languishing is your heart, declares the Lord God, while you do all these things, the actions of a bold-faced harlot. When you built your shrine at the beginning of every street and made your high place in every square in disdaining money, you were not like a harlot, you adulterous wife, who takes strangers instead of her husband. Men give gifts to all harlots, but you, you give gifts to all your lovers to bribe them to come to you for every direction of your harlotries. Thus you are different from those women in your harlotries, you in that no one plays harlot as you do, because you give money, and no money is given you. Thus you are different. Therefore, therefore, O oh harlot, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, because your lewdness was poured out and your nakedness uncovered through your harlotries, through your lovers with all your detestable idols, and because of the blood Of your sons, which you gave to idols. Therefore, behold, I will gather all your lovers with whom you took pleasure, even all those whom you loved and those whom you hated. So I will gather them against you from every direction and expose your nakedness to them, that they may see all your nakedness. Thus I will judge you, like women who commit adultery or shed blood are judged, and I will bring on you the blood of wrath and jealousy. I will also give you into the hands of your lovers, and will tear them down, uh, tear down your shrines, demolish your high places, strip you of your clothing, take away your jewels, and leave you naked and bare. You will incite a crowd against you, and you will stone, and they will stone you and cut you to pieces with their swords. They will burn your houses with fire and execute judgments on you in the sight of many women. Then I will stop you from playing the harlot, and you will also no longer pay your lovers. So I will calm my fury against you, and my jealousy will depart from you, and I will be pacified and angry no more, because you have not remembered, because you have not remembered the days of your youth, but have enraged me by all these things. Behold, I in turn, in turn will bring your conduct down on your own head, declares the Lord God, so that you will not commit this lewdness on top of all your other abominations kind of goes on like that until you get to about verse 60 we could continue on at verse 60 says nevertheless this is the lord speaking i will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth and i will establish an everlasting covenant with you then you will remember your ways and be ashamed when you receive your sisters both your older and your younger and i will give them to you as daughters but not because of your covenant Thus I will establish my covenant with you and you shall know that I am the Lord so that you may remember and be ashamed and never open your mouth anymore because of your humiliation when I have forgiven you for all that you have done, the Lord God declares. That's the picture of adultery. A prostitute that is so despicable that they pay money for people to receive their services, instead of receive money for their services. That was God's image of this nation that he claimed his, and they now rebelled against him. And in this letter, James, as we continue to focus on these people who claim the name of Christ, they profess Christ, but yet they are living completely different lives, opposite lives of Christians should be living, is the same way of being adulteresses and adulterers. That they are claiming to be children of God, yet they are living exact opposite lives. They are committing adultery against the Lord. And so that is why the use of such a harsh term, you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world, which is what we just read about in Ezekiel, is hostility toward God, which is also what God made very clear in that passage. And we have other pictures of this as, as the church is the bride of Christ. And, and maybe you've heard that term before. Uh, that term is actually not explicitly found in scripture that the church is the bride of Christ. But we see through examples like Ezekiel and, and through Hosea in the Old Testament of, of God commanding Hosea to marry unfaithful women as an as a example, as an illustration of how Israel is being unfaithful to him. And in Ephesians 5, in the instructions on for for husbands and wives to love one another, Ephesians 5 says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water and the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless, which once again is illustrated in that Ezekiel passage we just read matthew twenty five Jesus tells of a parable about ten, 10 virgins who are waiting uh, for the bridegroom to, to uh, approach and as, as some of them got lazy and some were not lazy, and, and essentially it's talking about the kingdom of heaven what's going to be like and, and when, when it's going to be a surprise when it arrives and, and Jesus is referring to himself as being the bridegroom, and the church in that sense will be the bride. We see these pictures time and time again. That we, the church, we are the bride of Christ. He treasures us as a, as a husband should treasure his bride. And, and in marriage, that is our very picture of what husbands should be like, is how God treasures his beloved. We don't need all these other Christian marriage books that, that give all these other illustrations that may be helpful. Really, the ultimate illustration we really need as Christians to have, uh, to, for husbands to be godly husbands is to look at God himself and have a better understanding of how God loves us and then that husband would be able to love his wife as God loves him. We don't need any other anecdotes on, on how husbands need to uh, how love begins in the kitchen and all these things or early in the morning start doing the dishes or do do all these chores and stuff. We don't need stuff like that. We just need good theology on how loving of a God we have as his church and in turn that is our model in marriage, but here it is, you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, there's a therefore. Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. If you were to ask most people on the street, if you were to ask them if if God is happy with them or not, uh, regardless if they're a Christian, they most likely say yes. You know, they might say, you know, I'm a good person, I've done all these things. Uh, why would God hate me? I haven't committed murder, I haven't done, uh, I've uh, been honest on my taxes. You know, they can name off a lot of things on why they think God would not hate them. But that's not the heart of what this text is getting at. Remember that this whole text, this whole letter of James is getting at what it really means to be a Christian. And in chapter 4, it's getting at the heart of things, of, of those who claim Christ, but they are still being driven by their lustful pleasures. They are still pursuing the things that they think are going to make them happy and make them feel good. They're not pursuing God at all. They're still very living very selfishly. And, and so in, in this this statement he's making, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God, is this very divisive statement. You cannot have both. It's interesting when people try to have both, they always assume that that they'll, they'll get the better of the two just automatically. So if we try to be friends, if we try to get everything we want in life and we uh, say that we're Christian, then we assume that we'll, we're still a Christian and we get everything we want. But it's interesting that no one ever thinks the other way—that that 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 if we try to have both, then we can't have what we want in this world. It tends to—I don't know a better way to explain that. Just writing this out on paper was difficult to was difficult to explain. But people just assume that they have good intentions. People assume that they have good intentions. They go to church on Sundays. They, they maybe give an offering uh, to the church. But yet, Monday through Saturday, they give no, no thought to the Lord. They give no thought to his word. They give no thought to, to what God thinks of what they're doing with the rest of their life. But they assume that they'll just have both. They assume that they have good intentions. And that's enough. We are told plainly, uh, well, first of all, first and second commandment are a good example. Uh, You shall have no other gods before me, and you shall not make yourself an idol. Those speak pretty clearly that there should be no competition in our devotion to the Lord. There should be no competition at all. And and to uh, reiterate this whole idea of being enemies, I'll just read Exodus. You don't have to turn there. But Exodus chapter 20, where the Ten Commandments are found, uh, God makes a statement. You shall not worship them, the idols, uh, or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and fourth generations, on those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to the thousands of generations, or thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. There's this misunderstanding in the American church especially that if we're going to call ourselves Christians, it means that you love God. It means that you love the Lord. It means that you love Jesus and his commands. And there's a sense in this, uh, in this culture that you can call yourself a Christian, but, but you don't really have to love him. That you could be thankful for all these things that we preach about Christ and he gave his life for us. He gave us, uh, he died on the cross and rose again so we could be forgiven of for our sin. But yet those, there'd be many people profess that, yet their life does not display any kind of love for Christ. We've all been around enough people that we know what it looks like for someone to claim that they love someone, but their actions don't match up with it. We w- we know what it looks like, unfortunately, for marriages to have wedding rings, but yet when you look at their marriage, it doesn't s- display any sort of love for one another that we think that the rings represent. We know what it looks like to claim for people to claim they have loved someone, yet their actions don't show it, and it makes us angry inside. It makes us it makes us burning up. It makes us burn up inside when we see or when we see or inter- interact with our loved ones when they say they love us, but yet we're not feeling it. It makes us angry. And that's the very feeling that God has when people claim the name of Christ, yet they have no love for Him when you look at their life. Uh, Matthew 6 makes it clear that no one can serve two masters. in, in this passage, it, it speaks very to the heart of this. And by the way, if you study the words of Jesus and you, and you read the letter of James, uh, James being the half-brother of Jesus, you'll see a lot of parallels between the letter of James and much of Jesus' own teachings. It's almost as if James is, is reiterating and summarizing and, and recapping all these teachings that his half-brother gave. And, and you'll see a lot of parallels as he... Read through James, and you read through the teachings of Jesus. And uh, the, the book of James, the letter of James, wasn't accepted in the canon of Scripture at first, because nowhere in James, except for the very first line of it, where James says, a bondservant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, there is no theology about Christ outside of that. There's, there's, no, there's nowhere mentioning Jesus by name, Uh, outside of that very first line. And and so a lot of of the early church fathers and people early on, they didn't want to accept the letter of James because they weren't really sure what it had to do with the rest of Scripture. But as we see very clearly in the teaching of James and how much it parallels the very teachings of Jesus and being the half-brother of Jesus, there's so much more that this letter offers us. There's so much, there is so much deep theology and faith and works and how they're connected to each other. Um, But so a little fun fact about James. But Matthew 6 says, don't store up your treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, but instead store up your treasures in heaven where nothing is destroyed. I'm summing it up for you. For where your treasure is, your heart will be also. Once again, it's that divide. Where your treasure is, your heart will be also. Your heart cannot be in two places. A husband cannot love two wives equally and wholly and, and unconditionally the same. A wife cannot love two husbands or have two lovers in the same way. And he ends it, Jesus ends this, this passage by saying, no one can serve two masters. You will, either have, you will either hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And so in in the struggle that we have as Christians of the temptation of seeking after worldly things, uh, we have to to be careful of this attitude, I think, of I deserve this or I earn this. We we often uh, get in these modes and the temptation of when I'm working hard, I deserve more. Or when I work hard, I earned more. And and we tend to want to reward ourselves more than we enjoy the reward of Christ. We tend to seek the rewards that we could give ourselves more than we we seek the rewards that we can receive only through Christ. And that's a danger, that's a temptation that we will all face as Christians. And and in this context, these are the fake Christians. These are the fake Christians, the ones who are saying they're Christians, but yet they are wholly committed to their own pleasures. Wholly committed to their own lustful uh, interests. We have to be careful this attitude of, I deserve this or I earn this. I deserve this reward. I want to reward myself with this because I earned it. Uh, we often find more joy in rewarding ourselves than how God can reward us. And that's just something, a danger that we need to be aware of. Uh, I think it's interesting that uh, a, a lot of people will agree that patience and contentment are good things. You know, Pretty much everyone across the board will, will probably agree that it's good to practice patience and it's good to be content with what you have. But I think it's interesting when you, when you uh, talk to most, most people or get to know most people, patience and contentment tend to only be practiced when they're absolutely forced to. Patience and contentment are things that we tend to practice only when we're absolutely forced to. Because when we find a way to get what we want, then we say, oh, the Lord provided a way for me to get this. I'm going to get it right now. God must want me to have this because he gave, he gave us enough to get it right now. We can't miss this opportunity. See, when we're not forced to be patient and contentment, that's when we're truly patient and content. Instead of being forced to be patient and content, there's no true patience or contentment in that because you're being forced to do it. You're just in a position where you can't solve it yourself, and therefore you're forced to sit and wait. And, and, and everyone thinks these are good things, but yet they don't really practice it. Because especially in this, in this uh, privileged culture that we're in, you know, that we're not living on a dollar a day like most people are around the world. We have the ability to get what we want, when we want it. We don't have to wait. We don't have to be content. We could buy all the things that we want and then say, yeah, I'm content now. And then something new comes along. As Christians, we need to, to practice patience and contentment, even when we're not forced to. And this takes discipline. But this is this is something that comes to our hearts is, is being uh, an enemy of God or a friend of the world, uh, we always have to be be examining ourselves and how much am I in love with the world how am I how much how much am I banking on these things to bring me the joy that the Lord should be bringing me that I should be finding in salvation in Christ that I should be finding in the Lord this is something we all have to examine ourselves in whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an Enemy of God. If you guys remember earlier in James that he literally used, uh, uh, described wisdom of this world as being demonic, as being demonic. So when you don't seek the wisdom of God, you are seeking the same wisdom, that of Satan and demons themselves, that you are just as against the will of God as Satan and demons are, because you're not seeking the will of God. That's a strong statement. So whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. 1 John 2:15 says, Do not love the world or the things in it. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father. It is from the world. The world is passing away and also all these lusts, but the one who does the will of God lives Forever. Two times in James, he reiterates that the kingdom of heaven is for those who love him. It's not just for those who want to be there. It's for those who truly have a love and passionate desire for the things of God. This separates the true believer from the fake believer. This true, passionate desire to love God and to know him more and more throughout our lives. It's something that is ongoing. Sanctification is something that never stops in the life of a Christian. This discontentment of how well we know God. We're content with all the wrong things. We tend to be content with our spiritual lives, but we're very discontent with our worldly lives. and We tend to say, well, I'm doing enough as a Christian. I've gone to church enough times. I know enough Bible verses, but here's all the things that I want on earth, you know. And we're very discontent in our earthly lives, but we're very content with our spiritual lives. And that needs to get switched around. We need to, as Christians, we need to be very discontent with our growth in Christ. We need to always be examining ourselves, looking at the areas of sin in our lives, where if we truly believe that we sin every day, then we should be able to write it down every day. But so many times I'll ask people, usually in the student ministry, I'll ask them, so uh, write down some sins from today, and their papers are blank. Why? Because they think of really big things. They think of, you know, oh, I I yelled at someone, or, or, well, I didn't. I didn't kill anyone, right? I didn't tell any lies today. Or They, they, they think in very uh, um, uh, much larger terms of that. But if we know and we believe that we do in fact sin every day and God's mercies are new every morning for us, then we should be able to make a list of all those things. We should be able, be able to be very honest with ourselves. And when we see that list, we become very discontent with that. We say, Lord, and we pray for God's wisdom. We say, Lord, help me. With these things, we need to be discontent spiritually and content materialistically, materially. So, and then the next statement: How uh, it, it says, "This is a, a very controversial passage." It's, "Do you think that the scriptures speak to no purpose?" In verse five, that he jealously desires a spirit which he has made to dwell in us. If you have the New American Standard, then it. it you have a capital H there. It says, he jealously desires the capital S, spirit, which he, capital H, meaning God, has made to dwell in us. This is a very interesting passage because he's not actually quoting any scripture found in the Bible. He's not quoting any particular verse in here. And uh, most scholars would agree with his idea that, in the if you look at the Greek passage, there is no he in there. It just says jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. And I would agree with actually the King James translation here, where you simply put the jealously desires after uh, at the end of that sentence. So it would read something like this: Do you think the scripture speaks to no purpose? The spirit which God has made to dwell in us, jealously desires. And in the context of this passage, I think that's more of what it would probably be. Remember, the context of this passage is about this lust that we have as human beings. Our our sinful pleasures are are what drive us as a sinful man. And and James is summing up Scripture, uh, he's summing up in uh, general, summarizing a teaching of scripture in the Old Testament, that it's the spirit within us, the sinful man, the sin nature within us, that is causing us to jealously desire all these things. And so I would read it that way, that the spirit which God has given us jealously desires. We see examples of this in, in Genesis, in the first murder between Cain and Abel in 4-7, Genesis 4.7 where God is warning Cain. He's saying, do, uh, your, your sin is crouching at the door, and its lust, his desire is for you. And he's warning him not to give in to this. It's this desire, this lust. We see, uh, uh, once again, earlier on in chapter 4, it's you lust and do not have. So now he challenges us. Do you think that scriptures speak to no purpose, that the spirit which dwells in us jealously desires But he gives a greater grace in verse 6. He gives us a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That even though we have all these things in us that cause us to seek after things of the world, demonic things, evil things, things that, that, that are hatred towards God, for those who are true believers, God gives a greater grace. And even when the times come when we're overwhelmed with our own sinfulness, we rejoice in this fact that God gives a greater grace. That as we make these lists of all the sins in our life, as, as we are discontent with where we are in our spiritual growth, that we are discontent in that we want to continue to seek after holiness and sanctification, and we could be overwhelmed with how, fall, how far we fall short of God's glory. God gives us a greater grace in Romans it says it this way that as sin increases God's grace increases all the more God gives a greater grace now here he actually is quoting scripture he's quoting Proverbs 3:34, which says though he scoffs at scoffers yet he gives grace to the afflicted the reason why it's to the afflicted because uh, many times in the, the afflicted in the Old Testament would, would uh, represent those who are humbled if you're afflicted, if you're like the man on the mat who can't get up and move and he has to wait for the angel to stir the the waters in the pond, you are broken, you're humbled at that point where you have to rely on God to save you or to intervene for you. That's what the afflicted represented in the Old Testament. God gives grace to the humble. Hebrews 10, 11, 12 says every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, which is Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. As soon as we sin as Christians, it's just as quickly forgiven. It's just as quickly forgiven. As soon as we sin, it's just as quickly forgiven. This reminds us of the joy that, of those who receive Christ at the moments before death. This is why it's so important to, to believe in the fact that we can preach the gospel to the dying moments before they die, because God's grace is greater than a whole lifetime of sin. The letter James ends with this statement. It says, Let him who turns a sinner from the error of his ways save or I'm sorry let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins this is why it's so important to preach the gospel because even people in their dying breath can be converted their heart can be softened and in that moment they can be saved because God's grace is greater than the whole lifetime of sin a lot of people think, oh, well, I'll just receive Christ right before I die, and then I'll be forgiven. And that's a very stupid plan, because no one can predict when they're going to die. And number two, what is it? Is The kingdom of heaven is for those who, what? Love him. There is no love expressed in that statement. Oh, I'm just going to cheat on God, commit adultery on God, until I'm about to die, then I'll ask for forgiveness. There is no love in that. I don't know any marriage that would survive or any spouse who would forgive their spouse if they had that kind of attitude about their marriage. I'll just commit adultery until right before we get divorced and then I'll apologize. It's a very stupid plan. And so we have this joy when we have loved ones who are passing away and we might think it's too late or we see their life spiraling down and we become discouraged, thinking that there's no way they're going to receive the gospel. And we don't know if they will or not. But it's an encouragement to us to never stop. Because you don't know, and I don't know. Because God's grace is greater than all their sin and all of our sin. If we know that God's grace is greater than all our sin, then the same goes for everyone else. There's joy in, in, in for those who can receive Christ in their dying breath. The thief on the cross is one of our best examples. The one who turned to Jesus and said, remember me, remember me. And Jesus said to him, assuredly, I say to you, you will be with me in paradise. He didn't have to pray the prayer of salvation. He didn't have to have all the Bible verses and Romans laid out for him. He didn't have to make up for all his sin in some way. He didn't have to uh, prove his salvation by getting down from the cross and, and feeding the poor or anything like that. A lot of times we think with faith and works that people have to prove their salvation. That's not true at all. Otherwise, this whole idea of receiving Christ at the end of our life would would be preposterous. Because how can someone, right before they die, do good works before they die? But the whole idea is that those who profess Christ and they continue on living, they will show their their love for the Lord. It's inevitable. It's not that they have to prove their faith. It's just that their love for God and their actions are proof of their love for God. There's also joy, the joy of those who receive Christ despite feeling that they're unforgivable. Maybe it's, now, it's not so much their moments before dying, but maybe those who feel like they have done something so despicable, so evil, and the whole world would tell them that same message, that you are an evil person. What you've done is unforgivable. What you've done is, is disgusting. Even those people can receive this greater grace. For those who are sentenced to death or to life in prison or, or those that we would deem as monsters in this world, they can receive this greater grace. That God's grace is so great that nothing is impossible with God. If we truly believe that, then we can believe that any human being, regardless of what they've done, can be changed by the power and grace of God. No one is outside outside of God's sovereignty. If he calls someone to himself, they will come to him. And then lastly, the joy of those who receive Christ at a young age. And then they live a life stumbling. They, they receive Christ at a young age, four or five years old or ten years old, whatever it might be. And they're still, they still have difficult stages of life to go through. They still have their teenage years to go through. They still have puberty to go through. They still have uh, the the first times they start going on dates and and start experimenting with dating and and what love is supposed to look like. They start experimenting what it's like to make their own decisions apart from their parents' authority. And and so it's often said in psychology in the counseling world is is that we actually don't stop uh, we're still very much forming our personalities, our in, individual personalities, through the age of, of like 25. And there's so much formation going on in that. As, as children who receive Christ, truly receive Christ, at a young age, they are going to stumble. And they're going to make some mistakes. And they're going to make some mistakes that they're going to look back on and say, how could I be so stupid? You know, I, I was a Christian my whole life, it felt like. I was a Christian from a young age, and I made these really stupid decisions. There is joy for them to know that God gives a greater grace. And as parents, we can rejoice in that. That God gives a greater grace for our children if they have a true relationship with the Lord that we're going to see them mess up and we're going to see them make mistakes on their own. And if they're truly believers, God gives a greater grace. That is a hope for these people. That is a hope for these people who are being friendly with the world. They wish to be friends of the world and they are, in effect, an enemy of God. There is still hope for them because God gives a greater grace. There is still hope for them. So now we get into verses 7 to 10 and this is kind of one, we're going to deal with it as one long passage, one long verse. But it starts off saying, submit therefore to God, Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. This is a call to salvation. This is a call for these people who are friends of the world and enemies of God. This is James' It is exhibiting his heart for the lost right here. Submit to God. Because as of right now, you are an enemy of God. The Revelation, uh, uh, Revelation speaks clearly that those who are on the same side of Satan and his demons, they will all be thrown into the lake of fire through whoever's name is not found in the book of life. So therefore, submit to God. He's pleading to these people. These are people who are in the church, but not of the church. These are people who have a false hope. Because their lives are not in accordance to their profession of faith. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. In other words, it's this idea of uh, oppose the devil. Resist him. uh, Be hostile towards him. So as of right now, you're, you're enemies with God. Well, you need to start seeing yourself as an enemy of Satan. An enemy of the devil. And so you need to start opposing the things that are demonic. You need to start opposing the sinful, opposing the thing that God hates. And those things will flee from you. The devil will flee from you. The devil does not hold any special power over a Christian. We see that when Jesus was fasting forty nights, he was tempted. And he refuted uh, uh, the, uh, Satan, the deceiver, with scriptures every time. And, the, and he fled. We have that same power that is living in us. The spirit of God lives in us. We have the same power to resist the things that are evil. Resist the devil and he will flee from us. The devil holds no special power over the Christian. Because God dwells in us. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. That is a promise. Draw near to God he will draw near to you. That is an awesome promise. How many times we, maybe you've met a friend who, who was afraid to walk through the doors of the church because they would catch on fire or something or they thought the building would come down on them because he, they are so sinful and so evil that God can't be near it. And it's so foolish to think that because what's to stop God from, from killing them, smiting them outside the church? Draw near to God and He will draw near to you. There is no fear for the person who calls upon the name of the Lord, who submits to Him, who is humbling Himself before the Lord. There is no fear in that. Hebrews says, Therefore, since we have a great great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. And ends with this Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, because it gives a greater grace. So that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. There is no fear in drawing near to God for those who submit themselves to him. God will not smite you. God will not turn away from you. For anyone who humbles themselves in the presence of the Lord, he will exalt. He will not turn away the humble, but he is opposed to the proud. That has a promise. Draw near to God. And he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands and purify your hearts. As Psalm 24 says this, Who may ascend to the hill of the Lord and who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart and who has not lifted his soul to falsehood but has not sworn deceitfully, he shall receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is a generation of those who seek him, who seek your face. The last one, it says, be miserable, mourn, and weep. This could throw people off sometimes. This is an aspect of conversion that cannot be escaped. I believe every true believer is going to experience this, this uh, form of humility, of being broken, of mourning, and crying, and sadness over our sinfulness. Uh, I, think, I believe it's impossible for someone to become a Christian and not experience this. Because that's the whole point of being afflicted. That's the whole point of being humble. Is that you are seeing your sinfulness in light of God's holiness. And you have no hope outside of God's intervention. And therefore, you are going to be sad of that. You're going to be broken over the things that you have done that were evil inside of the Lord. Just as, once again, in marriage, for a husband who is truly remorseful, he is going to be sad when he sins against his wife. And when, when a wife sins against her husband, they will be truly remorseful. Truly saddened over that. The same thing happens in the heart of a believer. Psalm 137, uh, this is kind of a funny one, now that we we could look back in retrospect. It says, By the rivers of Babylon we sat down and wept. We remembered Zion. Upon the willows in the midst of it we hung our our, our harps, for there our captors demanded us songs, saying, Sing us one of those songs of Zion. What was happening here is the nation of Israel was so prideful about being the people of God and God's holy nation, is that they got lazy. And they started worshiping other gods. And they thought nothing could touch them. So when they became captives to this other nation, to Babylon, they were mocking them, saying, Hey, sing us one of those songs that Zion used to sing. About how untouchable you guys are. How special you guys are. How are those those songs doing for you now? There's mourning that's involved in the true conversion of a believer. And then last one, it says, Humble yourselves and you will be exalted you will be exalted. Ephesians 2 says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in transgressions, we we were made alive together with Christ and raised us up with him, exalted, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And Romans 8 says, The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children... We are also heirs and heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ with Christ, if indeed we we suffer with Him, so that we may also be glorified with Him. Many times, when that verse is read or quoted, it's often taught that. We know if we humble ourselves, and God will exalt us. He'll give us these doors of opportunity in our life if we just humble ourselves, and we'll receive some kind of earthly blessing. Maybe we'll receive the house we always wanted, or or that uh, the amount of money we always wanted. Or we tend so often this verse is used in material in relation to material things, and that's so wrong. Actually, I listened to a sermon uh, from a local church uh, where the pastor used this verse to tell his congregation. That if they humble themselves, then God will open up doors of opportunity for them. That's not what this verse is about. It's so much bigger and so much greater. The whole idea of this passage is to get away from the material stuff. So James wouldn't go after, hey, humble yourselves, you'll get all this great stuff. That's exactly the thing James is is admonishing right here. It's the fact that you'll be exalted with Christ. Remember where true happiness is found in God's holiness, in God's wisdom. You will be exalted with Christ when you humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord. You will be standing with Christ. Let's, uh, let's end here. If you're here and you're not a Christian, no, my plea to you is verses 7 to 10. Submit To God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands. Purify your hearts. Be miserable. Mourn and weep. And humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. That's a promise. And we do that through faith in Christ who died in our place to pay the penalty of our sins so that we can be forgiven so we can experience this greater grace. If you are here and you are a Christian, then you need to reflect upon the ways that God's grace has caused you to oppose worldly things. How has God's grace, this greater grace, changed you? How has this greater grace uh, how has it turned your laughter into mourning and then back into laughter again because of what you've received in Christ? Reflect upon those things. And remember that temptation is always at our door as Christians to want to be friends of the world. Let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, we, we pray for your spirit to move in us, to keep us humble. We are made pure, we are made clean by the blood of Christ alone. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus and for any of those here this morning who maybe thought they were Christians and, and with later inspection that they found that they were not, or those here that they, they know they haven't made this profession yet, God, we pray, I pray, that you convict them of that now. Convict them of their need for forgiveness and salvation. That right now they are your enemy and your enemies will be crushed in the end. But there is hope for your enemies as Romans states, that while we were still enemies, Christ died for us. So there is hope for those in this room who, as of right now, are your enemy. There is hope for them to be convicted of their sin, to place their faith in Christ, and they will be called friends of God. That was our hope and prayer for every person in this room, Lord. We pray that you will continue to sanctify us and, and have, uh, help us to find this happiness that is only found in your holiness.